Hey, good morning. Good morning. I have a question for you. Um, how does a gas pump work? Any idea how a gas pump works? Like the things that, you know, whenever you, you know, the gas comes out of them, of course. And, and maybe, you know, if you're from Pennsylvania, you've probably had to pump your own gas. Maybe you drove in from Jersey and, and you don't know how these things, that, but they, they shut off on their own. The, the pressure kicks back. Well, I've always been fascinated with how things work. I've always wondered how the heck this works or that works. I was a, a biology major, so figuring out how rods and cones worked in the eye or G proteins or mitochondria, how chlorophyll, it, it all just was amazing to me and, and still is amazing. And um, my, my oldest daughter, Abby, she's also a scientist by training, and she, she sends me these, these goofy videos sometimes about how things work. And she sent me one about a gas pump, the handle, how it works. And... Um, I was amazed. This guy, he has a great gig. He just cuts stuff in half, does videos about it. And then I forget the name of the, the video. We're not going to watch the video. It's not story time. But, um, but you, you can go out and Google this. It was fun. But he just he cuts these things in half and looks and sees how they, how they actually work. So, and, and inventions are meant to solve a problem, right? There's a problem. And the problem apparently with this was people were splashing flammable gasoline all over the place, bad form. You don't want that. So somebody was like, well, we need to stop that. And probably a good way of doing that is like, what if whenever some pressure hits the front of the thing, it just stops. Now, this is long before there were fun, cool electronics that could just de- detect the pressure. This, this is way more cool and way more complex. It, um, I'm not going to go into it because I really don't understand it that well, but even after watching the video once or twice, but uses the Venturi principle of airflow, and somehow all these ball bearings, all these springs work together to click the thing off immediately so we're not standing in pools of flammable liquid all the time. And, and that's, on, on the whole, a good thing. I think, um, but, but, so, a, so a, an invention is meant to solve a problem, okay? It's, it's, it's a, there's a presenting problem. It needs a solution. And then, but it's really important to understand how it works. How does the thing work? Because if you don't understand how something works, you can't fix it. You can't troubleshoot it. You can't make another one. Once the one breaks, it's like, I don't know, some guy made it in, in 1912, and we don't know what to do anymore. So you got to figure out how things work so that you can fix them. But in, in the case we're going to look at today, we're also going to see how do we respond. Now, this, this really doesn't require a response. Just use it. Um, don't try to guess at it. Just use the thing. But um, we're going to be looking today at the book of Romans. Now, if you know any, uh, if you've been with us, you know we've been looking at uh, various books of, of the New Testament, and we call them books, but they're really they're letters. Um, these are, are letters written by the Apostle Paul. So we're tracing the early history of the Christian movement through the letters of the Apostle Paul, who wrote these wonderful, wonderful letters to um, to correct problems, to 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 correct false teaching. Uh, when there was some infighting in the church, different things going on, he would write these wonderful letters. And Romans is the longest, most expansive of the, of the letters. And it, but it's written in a way, it's the most systematic of all of Paul's writings, we say. It's, it's the most, uh, it, he's not necessarily addressing a specific problem. He's writing, um, and, and here is his, his magnum opus, his, his, his greatest work, I think, of, of just writing, this is what I believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna, we're going to unpack that and then talk about how it works and what it is. But, but, but Romans is just is an opportunity for Paul to say, this is what I think about the big picture of how God works with human beings and works in humanity. So it's a, it's a magnificent uh, book overall. It's, it's 16 chapters. We're going to take um, about seven verses and try to condense it down. But um, I commend to you the rest of the book. There are a lot of things we're not going to talk about today. 
a lot of things we're not going to talk about. So if you want to come up and tell me, hey, Pastor Dave, you didn't talk about this, you didn't talk about, so, so why should we continue to live? Anyhow, I won't go into everything I'm not going to talk about because then I'd be talking about it. But uh, read the rest of the book, okay? Read the rest of the book. So we're going to look at uh, verses, uh, chapter 3 of Romans, verses 21 uh, to 26. Verses 21 to 26. And um, this, so we just, uh, we're singing a song uh, that I was reminded of, Martin Luther, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, he said of this passage of Romans 3, 21 to 26, he said, this, this is the central point of all of Romans, indeed of the entire Bible. This is the focal point. This is the crux. This is where it all comes together. This little passage here is the kernel of everything the scriptures teach. Not, not everything the scriptures teach, but the, the, the pure essence of what, it's, what it has to say. The chief point and very central place of the epistle and indeed the whole Bible. So I'm going to read it for you. So here's what I'm going to do. This is, um, I'm going to read through the passage in, in the New International Version. Fantastic translation of the Bible. Great translation of the Bible. Um, but it, it's, it's still a little, it's, it's a little hard to track because Paul's writing is dense and thick and tightly argued. So it's a little hard to, argue, um, to understand. So we're going to read um, from the New Living Translation after that. And then we're going to go back and just like with that, with that pump, we're going we're to take it apart. We're going to take apart this passage, look um, bit by bit at the, the New International Version and what it, what it says, the, the translation there. All these are great translations, don't get me wrong. Um, the, the NLT is just a little more uh, con, uh, contemporary, uses language that, that we would use a little more in everyday life. So, so I'm going to read, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by, Jesus Christ, by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now I read that after having read it probably 200 times in the last couple weeks and my head is still swimming. My head is still swimming with what's this and where's this going? So let me, let me read it in the New Living Translation and then we're going to go back and unpack it. So, But now... God has shown us a way to be made right with him, keeping the requirement, without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus Christ sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. 
So there's a problem. There's a problem. I don't know if you can detect it in here. But um, even before we get to this point in Romans, Paul lays out that there is a massive problem that all humanity faces. He says in chapter 1 and 2 that every human being has done things that have, that have separated them from God. The Bible calls that sin. Uh, we, you know, we violate our own conscience. We break laws. We, the, but we have every one of us by, by choice taken a, a way that, that is contrary to what God wants. Paul says in the ancient, ancient world, people did every the, the temples they built, the, the pyramids, Angkor Wat, which stretches across 400 acres of land, um, Machu Picchu, the Areopagus, all these, these wonderful temples of Artemis, one of the great wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Solomon. They were built because people were like, we are in desperate need of being restored to God. Sacrificial systems made, food laws. How do we come back into right relationship with God? There's something desperately wrong with us that we, we sense deep in our soul. Now we say as moderns, well, maybe we don't feel the same thing. If, if you're there and you say, hey, well, that was a problem. They, they had this old, these psychoses that they had from their, from their past and we've overcome that. I just say, look around and say, is the world how you, you think it ought to be? You know, is, is the world what it ought to be? Um, there, there is something desperately and deeply broken. And, and you may disagree with their diagnosis and, and, uh, or, or the, the Bible's diagnosis, but I would, I would ask you at least, as we, as we track with this, if, if you're not a follower of Christ, I'm, I'm so glad you're here, but just, just listen, maybe just out of curiosity, like what the heck do Christians believe when they talk about the gospel? What do they come to church for? What's the big deal? Why do they give money and go around the world telling other people about this? I think you'll get a sense of, of what, this, what, the, what the problem is and the solution that we're proposing, okay? So Paul, for two chapters, he's built up the fact that mankind, humanity, is, is separated from God by something, and that something is, is their sin, is the, the, the wrong that they have done. So he's built that up in Romans, and he, he comes to Ro- verse 23 of Romans uh, 3 and says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when he, when he says that, so obviously a couple things going on there. Everyone, without exception, every, every human being who's drawn breath has, has done something to, to separate them from God. And you might say, well, yeah, so we do little things. We, we lie, we, we maybe um, cheat on a test or we, you know, lust or we do, we do some things. But come on, it's, it's not that bad. I'm not a murderer. I haven't done that. I haven't broken any of the big commandments or whatever. But if, what he says here is all have fallen short of the glory of God. Let me, let me tell you why you were created according to the scripture. You were created to bear perfectly the image of God. Like, like the, the Hubble Space Telescope when it was supposed to be, you know, right. The, the mirror was, was supposed to be perfect and perfectly focused things. You were supposed to, but it was, it was messed up as you, as you know. We were to be perfect reflections of God. Not, in, not in, in his vastness and greatness, but at least in his character. We were, we were glorious creatures created to bear the image of God so that if anything in all creation would look at us, would look at you, would look at me and say, ah, oh, that's what God is like. So sin then is like a goofy funhouse mirror or a weird lens on your phone that says, this is what God is like. God is corrupt. God is God's stingy. God is, is lustful and evil. And he does, so any, any, so the, 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 the weight of sin is that it says this is what God is like. This is what the God of the universe is like. This holy, gracious, powerful creator God. He's like this. So when we sin, when we do wrong, when we violate his law, we say this 
We reflect to the world, this is what he's like. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why it's such a big deal. And Paul says, this is a problem. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is creation language when it looks back to, to glory. We've fallen short of that glory. And a little later in Romans, Paul will say the result of that sin, the, the payment for that, that sin, for that violation of God's will is, is death. Inevitably, God said to, to Adam and Eve, he, he looked at them in the garden. He said, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. You will surely die. We look at, they, they didn't die. They didn't fall over dead instantly, but they were separated. There was a separation that came between them, between one another. They immediately start pointing the finger at each other, saying she did it, he did it, they did it, the snake did it. They, and then ultimately, God, you did it. You put the dog on tree here. You put the dog on snake here. It's not our fault. So suddenly, separation between one another and between God the wages of sin, the payment for the wrong things we do is, is this death. It's a separation. So here's the problem. Much more severe than a pump that won't shut off whenever you like, uh, that you have to let go of the handle. This is a problem that we are separated from our creator. We are, we are separated and we are under this death penalty. The wages that we have earned is, is, uh, is a death penalty, a separation from God. So I'm going to close in prayer. No, I'm not, actually. (laughs) We're going to go on because he presents the problem. He makes the problem abundant and clear, and they're all standing there like, so what the heck are we going to do? This is a problem. We're all separated from God by our sin. He said, well, but now, this starts off, but now. And one famous uh, author, pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, these are the two most precious words in all of Scripture, but now. He has done something apart from the law. The righteousness of God has, made, has been made known to with the, which the law and the prophets testify. But now, there's something had been true in the past. There was a way that everybody sought to relate to God. It was through their, their hard work, their effort, their sacrifice, their prayers, their, their, their reading of their scriptures. There was a way that they sought to relate to God and they assumed, they hoped, they prayed, they they. they despaired, but they, they, in hope, they kept on that maybe God would accept them. Maybe, maybe God would accept them. But Paul says, but now, apart from the law, apart from anything that you can do, a righteousness of God has been made known. And, and in fact, he says, it's, it's given. The righteousness of God is given. So, so God has done something in time and history, and we believe it's the cross of Jesus Christ. As you go on and you read Romans, it's the cross, what he accomplished on the cross in the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. But now, something has changed. Something has changed. It's like a, a lightning bolt has hit, has hit time and changed everything. A righteousness of God is given. So this isn't something that's worked for. It's, it's given. It's, it's a gift. It's something that's, that's the only act we can do is, is receive it. And in fact, it needs to be given. You know, if we could, if we could work our way to, to God, then we could, we could potentially put God in our debt, right? What kind of God can you put in your debt? I've worked so hard, you owe me, God. You owe me. You know, Whenever Paul says that the wages of sin is death, or the wages of our actions is, is, is spiritual death, he's looking at it and says, that's what we earn. You can't earn God's righteousness. It is given. So, but this, when we look at this term righteousness, we'll get on, um, it introduces us to a, another problem as well that we'll talk about in the, in the solution here. Um, and, and Jesus, though, they go on, Paul goes on to say, is the solution to the problem. He says that for all who believe or have faith in Jesus Christ, so the solution is, is pretty straightforward. God has done something in history by giving Christ on the cross. Uh, he is the solution to our problem of sin. 
So that's awesome. But how the heck does that work? Really, how does that, how does that work? So we're going to go, now this might sound as we go through a little technical, and I don't mean it to sound like ball bearings and springs and the Venturi principle and airflow and stuff. This, this is relational and, and beautiful and glorious as we talk about it. So there's some technical language that theologians use that Paul uses as he describes it. But I don't want to get, I don't want you to get um, so um, mired in the details that you lose the, the, the awesomeness and the grandeur of what, what God has done in Christ. So, but how, how does this work? As we look at this passage, the key, a couple of key phrases jump out. One is the righteousness of God. Let's see if that's up there. The, the righteousness of God. So the righteousness of God has, has two components to it, two components in, the, in this word, and, and, and they seem to live in tension with one another. One is that God always does what is good and right. He is holy. He is holy and perfect in all of his ways, which is wonderful and awesome, but is problematic for us, right? Is a problem if we're not good and holy and perfect, then that, thus the separation between us and God. If he is, always does what is good, always does what is right, always does what is holy, then, then we, as, as those who have fallen from God, are separated from him. But within the character of God, he's also, he is faithful to his promises. The, the one word uh, the, the Old Testament uses is God's covenant faithfulness, his hesed. His hesed, which means that God is, he, he long, his loving kindness, that he wants to, he's made a promise to make us right with himself. That when Adam and Eve fell, he said, I, I, will, I, will, send, I will send another, I will send my son. It, it goes through the, the, the course of the Old Testament that, that a Messiah would come. So, so God, in, in his righteousness, it says here that something is revealed about God, that both his, his goodness his holiness, but also his desire to save. Now this could be, a, this for us would be a problem because he's at once holy and, and, and cannot accept people who have broken the law. Because we wouldn't even, if a judge in, in our day, if a judge just said, you know what? I know you broke the law. I know you, you, you did something horrible and murderous and I'm just gonna let you go. The jury said, you're not guilty. We would say, is that a good jury? Is that a good judge? They just let him go. They just let them go. So we, God cannot do that. He, he will not do that because of his character. And yet, his love and faithfulness, his hesed, makes him, puts him in a position that he wants to do that. Not that this is controlling God. It's his own character, his own nature. So, so here we have, how does it work? First, there's the righteousness of God. His, his holiness and goodness, not intention, but, but married to his also his desire to do good. It says it's apart from the law. You see here it says apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So somehow, however this works, isn't following the law. This isn't about doing just us doing the right thing, trying very, very hard not to spill. This is apart from the law. And he says there's no difference. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We'll go back to the passage if you would. Sorry. Um, that there's, there's no difference be, between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That everybody, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, they have fallen short of God's, God's glory. What we all are in need of is something called grace. Now that's a word that we, um, we throw around a fair bit um, in church circles. And, but what does, it, what does it mean? How does grace work? If we can go to the, uh, the slide there and just look at, the definition of, of grace on there somewhere. Oh, there we go. So the way in which God has acted in Christ towards the helpless, unconstrained by anything 
beyond his own will, unconstrained by anything. So it says here, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace. So this is something you could not, I could not merit. So God has chosen to act unconstrained by anything outside of himself, to act kindly towards you, towards us who are helpless. So the gospel works um, by God in his righteousness, treating us with grace And then a couple of other words I have to unpack here. Go back to the passage. Sorry, Geneva, you're doing great. Um, Is uh, redemption. The word redemption. He says, um, yes, the justified us all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. What is redemption? You know, you read, okay, in in olden days you used to redeem a coupon or you redeem a, uh, some S&H green stamps. You redeemed something. You redeemed, yeah, I know some people, yeah, hey, there you go. You had those things. We had a set of dishes from S&H green stamps. But um, you redeemed something. You redeemed something. Well, this, this language, this is um, slave market language. People were in the slave market, uh, captured in battle. You know, maybe the Spartans lost to the Trojans, and I'm not talking about football. Um, they, they, they were, and they were taken captive, and they were in the slave market, and they were for sale. They were for sale. They needed to be redeemed, and they had a, you know, they would have a sign around their neck, and on the, they would have a price. They would have a price, and then someone could come by, and they could redeem. They could buy that person. And for us, the sign hanging around our neck, the price would have been death. The penalty, the, the price would have been an exchange of a life because the wages of sin, the payment, would have been death. And Christ said, I will take that. I will make that. Who on earth would make that exchange? But he did. He made that exchange. So redemption was a, was a, a word that Paul used here. Here's how it works, that he came and he redeemed us. He redeemed us by laying down his life. There's a story told of a, um, of a, a Catholic priest in Auschwitz who... Uh, Ten people were picked out to be killed because someone tried to escape. One of the people in the concentration camp tried to escape. So they picked out ten men and they were going to kill them. This one fellow um, who was picked out said, please, please spare my life. I have a wife and children. I want want to live for them. And this, this priest, Maximilian Kolbe, said, I'll die. I'll die for him. I'll stand in this place. You can take my life. And the Nazis, for whatever reason, said, okay, we'll take you instead. And... They, they took his life instead. So Maximilian Kolbe laid down his life in the place of another life. Well, Christ, in his redemption, he laid down his life for all of us. And he wasn't just a guy, a run-of-the-mill guy, even a priest. He was the son of God who laid down his life for us. This is how it works. God says, okay, I will exchange his life for the life of those who have sinned against me. So, so the word redemption. And secondly, he uses the word, uh, next slide there is um, atonement. Atonement, and this is, if you look in the Old Testament, the uh, the priest each year would go in and make atonement for the sins of the people. He would make atonement, and that means he would pour out uh, blood, a perfect sacrifice, the blood of a perfect sacrifice on the mercy seat of God to make atonement to pay for the sins of the people. So I think the redemption word is looking to to Paul's Roman and Greek audience because they were very familiar with the slave market. His Atonement is looking at his Jewish audience who were familiar with the, the blood sacrifice and saying this is how God, sin is paid for by atonement, that people are made right with God. And the, uh, Last thing I want to point out in, in terms of just how this works is the, the kind of key phrase in these passages, and it's, it's this idea of justification. 
Justification, we go back to it. Justification is to declare righteous or not guilty. God declares us innocent and absolves us from punishment for our sins. That you now, you and I now live in a constant state of grace. The gavel was about to fall. The, 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 the jury foreman stood up and was about to read the, the verdict. And it was going to be guilty on all charges. Guilty on all charges. And yet, suddenly, they received a, a note from someone that said, all charges are withdrawn. The, offending, the offended party has withdrawn all charges. The, the, God is the, is the one we primarily offend when we sin. Now, I realize we sin against one another, and that is not without consequence, and that is awful. But, but the primary person that we sin against when we break, we break the law is, is God himself, and he's withdrawn all charges, and he's borne the penalty on himself so that he has become, uh, he has become our the one who's justified us. He's declared us not guilty of our sin. And he's done it in a way that doesn't make him, uh, that doesn't just make him just look the other way or just kind of let us go scot-free. If you go back to the passage, it says this. I'll start at verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies. To be just and the one. So God could be just because sin was punished. Every wrong deed, every evil thing ever done was punished. Was punished on the cross. Christ received in himself every evil deed Everything that had been done, every law broken, every, uh, every murder committed, every genocide, they, that, that was poured out. That, the wrath, the righteous wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. So God was just because sin was paid for. But he was also a justifier. He didn't pick some random fellow from the, from the neighborhood and say, I'm going to judge him instead of him. That wouldn't be just, right? Just pouring out. And then Jesus wasn't just a volunteer. Jesus Christ and the, the, the beauty of the Trinity is that he was God himself. He was God himself. He was the offended party. So he was both just and justifier. And taking on our sins, that, that Christ, God was just, his, just, his justice was satisfied. So, but he also was the one who justified because he's the one who bore the penalty for our sins in himself. That is the good news of the gospel. And that's somewhat how it works. So God takes the sins of, of human beings, the, the wrong deeds that, that we have performed, and he says, I will pay for them myself. I will take the, the, the death penalty that they owe. I will bear on it. I will bear that myself so that they can have freedom, so that they can have life. So what's our, what's our response? How are we to respond? Well, th- this passage says this is given to all who believe. In verse 22, there, this righteousness is given. It's given. It's a gift. So it's a, a gift that we have to receive through belief, through faith. And this is justification by, by faith. Is, uh, verse 26 says, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time as to be the one who ju- just and justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So, so faith, if we go back to the, last, uh, the other, other slide, what is faith? 
Faith is just the hand of the heart taking, taking what is given but adding nothing. So by faith we receive from God his gift of life. By faith we receive from God the gift of life. Um, it, it's just uh, extending and, and receiving and trusting in what he's did. There's no, there's no effort on our part. It's simply thanking God for his gift. And uh, it's like on Christmas morning your kids got you, maybe borrowed 10 bucks from you to go and buy you a present. You receive that gift. You receive it with gladness and joy, but you don't think you're any wealthier for, for having gotten it, right? You, they probably kept the change, in fact. So you only got an $8 gift and they got two bucks in their pocket. But you, you receive that, we receive the gift by faith. We receive that gift by faith from God. So we're going we're gonna to go into a time of communion shortly here. And I think this is, a, this is a perfect, perfect opportunity for us to think about um, what God has accomplished and how we can receive it. And I would say we have, we have three, three possible responses to this, okay? Three possible responses for, for those who are here. Now, no, number one, I would say you can, you can rejoice. You can, maybe you have become a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have, have, have received him and, and this is, is, is old but good news to you, good but old news to you, that, um, that you can just sit in awe and wonder at what God has done, and you can adore him. You can adore him. Um, maybe, maybe you have become numb to God's grace. Maybe at some point in your life you, you understood the good news of the gospel, but you've begun, it's begun to, to slip, and you've started to think, I really need to, to my works are what's important. Uh, God would love me more if I did X, Y, or Z. I had a bad day yesterday because I didn't. Um, you, you, we, we slip into this paganism and how we relate to God. So I, to you, I would say repent. It's another R. Rejoice, repent. You've become numb to God's grace. And, and the word repent, okay, most times in the Bible, it's used not for, um, not for people who are outside of the faith. It's, it's used for Christians. And then third, to receive to receive. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I would just say, receive his, receive his gift of grace to you. Um, my wife, uh, I, I studied cancer. Re, I did cancer research for a number of years at the, uh, at the medical center, even helped to, I had a very, very, very small part in, in mapping where the KISS-1 gene was, a cancer suppressor gene on the, uh, the Q arm of chromosome 6. It was a lot of fun doing that. But um, I was curious about cancer when I studied cancer. I was curious. I thought it was really intriguing and, and fascinating. Um, but several years ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And suddenly I went from someone who was curious about cancer to someone who was desperate to find an answer to, to what cancer was. And every commercial that came on that talked about cancer spread and, you know, HER2 plus cancer, I, I, was, I was dialed into what it was going. So if, if you've not received, if you've not understood what the good news of the gospel is, I Maybe you're just curious and it's like, okay, now I know a little bit more about how this works. But, but my prayer for you is that, that you see that your need is for Jesus Christ. And what he's, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Christians, you might think, man, it's really, really narrow-minded for Dave to get up and say, Christians are the only ones good enough to go to heaven. Well, how narrow-minded is that? I'm way more narrow-minded than that, to be honest. I don't think Christ, anybody's good enough to go to heaven. Christians are the only ones... Who, who have figured that out, that God has revealed that too. So I just ask for you to consider that Christ has laid down his life. As we come to the communion table today, as we come to the communion table today, um, I ask everybody who is, is a follower of Jesus
to come and take these elements uh, and then we're going to receive them together. But if this is the first time that you've really ever understood what Jesus has done for you, come. You're welcome to come to the table and take these elements and receive them. And, uh, so, and then for those of you who maybe have become a little numb to God's grace in receiving these elements, I want you also to be reminded of what Jesus did. We're going to read a passage before you, um, before you take those. So, so band's going to play. You guys come on up and grab the uh, communion elements. Just come forward. There's some in the, in the front, some in the back. <laughs>